are two sons, and I said that these two sons represent two distinct groups of people, although not mutually exclusive groups of people, who Jesus was in the company of when he initially told this parable, the younger brother representing the sinners and the tax collectors, the obvious outcasts and the rebels of society, and the elder brother representing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people of status, the people of religious authority, the religious establishment. And this morning we focus specifically on the story concerning the younger son, and so tonight we're going to be looking at the response of the elder brother in verses 25 to 31. But just before we do that, uh, just for the benefit of those who maybe had a sleepy morning and uh, missed church today, and uh, so that we can just set that that response of the elder brother in its proper context, let's just remind ourselves, let's just do a, a brief recap on what happened. First of all, we focused this morning on the fact that this rebellious life of the younger son began with an offense to his father. He asked for his share of the inheritance, thereby declaring his independence and his self-governance, thereby declaring his desire for a life that was free from the perceived rigmarole, the routine, the responsibilities that came with being a part of the family. Second, we saw that the outworking of that desire was an escalating pattern of sinful living and debauchery, a slippery slope of decadence, which ultimately led to emptiness, despair, and disgrace. But then third, we were reminded of the wonderful truth that even then, having gone that far into rebellion, there was and there is still hope for such a person. And we looked at the pattern of repentance through the lens of this younger son, the change of mind, the confession of sin, the resolve of his will to go back to the father. And finally, we saw the amazing response of the father who did not withhold his mercy. He did not have a lengthy corrective speech prepared, but instead he ran towards, he kissed, and he embraced the boy. He restored him to sonship and he threw the biggest party that Prodigal Farm had ever experienced. Now, at this point in the story, I just want us to have a wee think again about the two groups that Jesus was speaking to here. One group, the tax collectors and the sinners, at least some of them would have surely had a look of absolute amazement and wonder and optimism on their faces. And you can just imagine maybe one or two muttering to the person standing next to them, can this really be true? Is this the kind of acceptance and love and forgiveness and reconciliation that is available to people like us? And at the same time, the other group of people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would have probably had a very strained and confused and anxious look upon their faces. And maybe a few of them turned and muttered 
in a kind of whisper to the person next to them, this man doesn't have it right. This is not how things are meant to work out. You can't just go running away and breaking all of the rules and then expect to one day be welcomed back just because you decide that you're good and ready to be honest about the fact that you've messed up. Who is this man? What is this teaching? What is this guy all about? And so Jesus continues the story. And as he continues the story, what he does in effect is that whereas this first half of the parable would have no doubt shocked the Pharisees into listening, it would have surely began to provoke in them this kind of response, the kind of response that was displeasing to God. What he does in the second half is that he reveals to them precisely the attitude and the false belief system or the false mental framework which informs this response. And so what is this response? Well, the first thing we see is that it is marked by a spirit of resentment instead of rejoicing. Resentment instead of rejoicing. In verses 28 to 30, we read that after the elder son had been told why there was music and dancing going on inside, it says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, this was undoubtedly the biggest celebration that this family had ever known. And the refusal by the elder brother to go inside was like a deliberate act of rebellion and disrespect to the father. Because by his refusal, what he was effectively saying was, I do not agree with or respect my father's judgment. And on that basis, I am not submitting to his authority and I will not show support for what is taking place in this house. And then in verses 29 to 30, it becomes very clear that the basis of that stubbornness is an attitude of superiority over his brother and resentment towards his brother. He's basically saying, I am superior, I am worthy, I deserve everything, whereas he is inferior. He is unworthy, and he deserves nothing. You can kind of imagine this boy, can't you? You can just sort of picture him with his, probably would have had his hands on his hips as he said this, you know, with his kind of right foot would have been, you know, that pointy thing that people do, you know. I am worthy, and he is unworthy. And what I think brings all of this into really solemn and and kind of sharp focus is when we consider the words of Jesus elsewhere in Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, where he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, clearly, Jesus wasn't saying there that there is such a thing or such a person, rather, as a righteous person or one who is not spiritually sick, as we said this morning, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But what he was saying was this, that those who come to me 
and find rest in the Father's care are not the superior and resentful big brothers, even when they have all of the robes and the tassels and the accoutrements of outward religion. But those who come to know the joy and the life and the fellowship of the Father are those who come to Him saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And yet there's a second application here, and it's to do with a pattern which I think stretches all the way from the first century until today, and sadly it is evident in our present day, which is that this resentment and this bitterness and this hostility is nothing less than the typical response of false religion to a genuine work of the gospel. Inside the house, gospel business is taking place with the restoration of a lost soul. But outside the house, the cold, hard emptiness of a distorted religion is shaking its fist. You see, false religion, whether we think of the Pharisees back in the first century with their many additional rules, or whether we think about liberalism today in the church with its rejection of biblical truth, it will always disguise itself with a very religious and moral exterior. But underneath all of that pretense is actually an outright hostility, so that when there is a faithful adherence to the true gospel, and when that faithful adherence begins to directly impact and affect the lives of those who are engaged in that which is false, they will do all that they can to undermine and to destroy it. And that is the pattern you see all the way through the New Testament. But notice, secondly, the reason that this elder brother has become resentful, which is that his whole life is based upon a false assumption. He believes that his acceptance by the Father is determined by merit instead of mercy. Verse 29, he says, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. In other words, because he believes that favor is rewarded on the basis of human performance, and because he knows that he's been there working hard all of this time, he therefore cannot stand the thought that his younger brother, who's done nothing in comparison, would be rewarded with such a celebration. Now, you know, I I think we have to have a certain degree of sympathy here with this elder brother, because at a purely human level, you can kind of understand what he's saying. After all, he's been there working hard every day. His brother has gone and squandered everything, and so if anyone deserves this celebration, surely it is him. I mean, isn't that the way that the whole world really works? You go to school, and you're told that if you perform well, 
then you'll do well. You go to university and you're told the same. Then you get a job and your boss sits you down and says, if you meet all of these objectives, you will be promoted the following year. Fine. The problem is when we take that mindset into our faith, into the realm of religion, into our understanding of who God is and how He relates to us. Because just think about what this reveals concerning the elder brother's beliefs. What it means is that the basis of his hope and his trust is not in his father's unconditional acceptance of him, but instead his faith and the entire basis of his hope is grounded in his own human efforts, which means that he's not only become his own God because he thinks that he's the one who ultimately earns his security and his acceptance by the Father, but on that basis, he therefore has no need for the free gift of his Father's gracious acceptance of him. Now, friends, if there is one thing that I believe is a real threat to our joy and to our peace in Christ. It is the propensity we have to fall back into this false view of things, to even as Christians to fall back into this mindset whereby we think that we are people who earn God's favor or that we are people who earn His salvation on the basis of our own works. And so, I don't know if you've ever thought about the cross of Jesus Christ in this way, but as you think about Jesus hanging on the cross, just consider the fact that this is what it took for God to be able to forgive your sins, to accept you as His child, and to give you the gift of eternal life. In other words, if God had to do this much, the humiliation, the slaughter, and the death of His only begotten Son in order that He could bring you to Himself, reconcile you, and pardon your entire life, then how could we possibly think that something that we do could contribute to our salvation. Do you see that to fall into this way of thinking is actually to make a mockery of the cross of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ has done it all. Jesus Christ has perfectly and totally fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in His life something that you and I are utterly incapable of doing. And Jesus Christ has fully and totally paid the price of our sin by His atoning sacrifice on the cross so that we, through Him and by Him and in Him, are now free to live under grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, 
not by works, so that no one can boast. And the danger of forgetting this is we'll not only begin to worship ourselves and be superior and self-righteous like the elder brother when we perceive ourselves to have done lots of good things, but we'll also be people who enter into despair and despondency and heartache and be extremely burdened when we do trip up, which we will because we are sinners. But two further things will also begin to develop in our lives, both of which we see here with the elder son. First of all, we will be people whose lives are marked by grumbling instead of gratitude. Grumbling instead of gratitude. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you, and then this, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. In other words, so embittered and angry is this elder brother that he completely forgets the fact that, first of all, he's still going to be given two-thirds of his father's estate, as would be his entitlement as the elder brother at this time. And, more significant, he completely misses the fact that for all of this time that the younger brother has been away, he has still been looked after. He has been cared for. He has been provided to because of the steadfast goodness and the faithfulness of his father. And this is the blindness of a person whose hope and whose life is based not on what the father has already been pleased to give to him, but someone who is fixated with who he is and what he has done. Not only that, but he mistakenly believes that the extent of his own human efforts should actually dictate and determine and control the father's response to him in life. One of the big problems that I think we have as fallen people who live today in such a consumer-driven society is that we often fall into thinking that God is there to serve us, that he is someone to be manipulated and controlled and dictated to according to our own perceived wants, our own perceived demands, according to what we think we deserve in life. But if we have truly come to see that whereas we are worthy of nothing, we have been given everything in Christ. Whereas we deserve hell, we have been brought to heaven by grace. Then whatever we face in our lives, and when we see someone else apparently being blessed in life in a way that we perceive to be unjust, we will surely still retain a humble sense of great gratitude and thankfulness for all that we have been given by the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. But if our starting point is that I deserve something on the basis of what I have done, on the basis of who I think I am, then when things don't turn out well, which they will not from time to time, we're going to become embittered 
we're going to be resentful towards both God and towards other people. And the second outworking of this life is you notice that the elder brother serves his father, but he does it with a spirit of joyless slavery instead of joyful servanthood. He says, all these years, I've been slaving for you. In other words, this is not someone who's serving his father out of a genuine respect, out of submission and heartfelt thankfulness for all that he's done throughout the boy's life. This is not someone who is remembering the fact that everything he has been given from the moment he was born has been granted to him as a gift of the Father's kindness. And again, it's here we see that this works-based religion, the religion that is ultimately dependent on what we do instead of what God has done, it will always be marked with a cold sense of duty and a joyless routine. But if, on the other hand, our service and our works and our lives are a genuine response to the fact that on account of our faith, we are already accepted in Christ on the basis of what He has already done, on the basis that the Father set His affection upon us before the foundation of the world, on the basis that this Father was pleased to purchase our lives by sending His only begotten Son into the world to be crucified, then our service will surely be out of privilege rather than duty. It will be from a place of devotion rather than fear. And it will be done with joy instead of resentment. Now, we're not told what happens in the end with this elder brother. And I think that is kind of deliberate. Jesus kind of leaves it hanging as a challenge to all those that he represents, not least the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But just in closing here, what I think is really wonderful in this parable is that it's very clear that even in the face of this stubbornness, this disrespect, this self-centeredness, this self-righteousness, it is very clear that the grace of God represented by the Father in this story is being freely offered to the elder brother and the religious hypocrites that he represents, just as it was to the younger brother and the wayward rebels that he represents. You see, the father didn't need to leave the warmth and the security of his home to come out into the cold and plead with the elder brother. He didn't need to show grace towards him, a boy who has categorically disrespected him and dishonored him. He didn't need to show him grace by saying, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But because he did so, it's as if what is being said here, father to son, and Jesus to the Pharisees 
was this. What are you doing out here in the cold with all of your uptight, self-righteous resentment? Humble yourself, you silly boy. Come inside where there is warmth, where there is forgiveness, where there is harmony and joy and reconciliation and acceptance and celebration. So often we think of the lost as being people who are never in the church, people who are living somewhere off in the far country, a life of extreme rebellion and decadence. But it's here we're reminded of the solemn reality that you can be sitting every week in the church and yet be in the spiritual far country. And so tonight, if you are a person who is convicted of being lost in a life of sinful rebellion against God, or if you are lost in some kind of false understanding of what religion really is, the message is very simple. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Let us pray together. Our Father, we marvel at the wonderful central truth that you freely welcome and pardon and restore sinners, whether we be people who have been running away in a life of obvious sin and rebellion, or whether we have been living a life of self-righteous pretense. You welcome us when we confess our sin, when we confess that there is absolutely nothing we can do to be redeemed by a holy God apart from accepting your gift in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We marvel at this amazing truth, the amazing grace that you have been pleased to show and to bestow upon your elect children. And so, Father, we do ask your forgiveness this night again for the many ways in which we have sinned against you this, per, this past week and perhaps for some here this evening asking for your forgiveness for perhaps the very first time. We ask our Father that you would be pleased to grant to them the assurance of your pardon. 
And Father, we ask your forgiveness for the times we have been proud, for the times we have been self-righteous and arrogant and resentful, perhaps even towards the work of your gospel. We ask that you would pardon us, and forgive our sins. And we ask, O oh God, that you would enable us to go out into another week, Lord, people with all kinds of different situations before them, perhaps some struggling with relationships, some anxious about work and student life, and some just worried in their faith. We pray, our Father, that you would come to each one by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would grant us the assurance of your presence with us with every step, in every conversation, in every activity, and that we would respond, O God, to this amazing grace with lives that honor you, with lives that display your glory and that lead others out of darkness and into the light, out from death and to the life that is ours in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.